and welcome to CXO Talk. This is Diane Hinchcliffe, your host. Um, it's uh, July 11th, Tuesday, um, CXO episode, CXO Talk episode 243, uh, and I'm very pleased that we have a special guest with us, Joanna Young, um, a noted former CIO, uh, a senior leadership IT thought leader, thinker, writer, advisor. I've been following her for a number of years, a big fan. Uh, she's currently Senior Managing Director of Blue Line Associates, where she advises uh, IT leaders of, of various shapes and sizes. And she has a big background in higher education, which we'll talk uh, some about during the show today. Uh, welcome, Joanna. Hello, Dion. How are you? I'm very good. Um, I'm very pleased you could join us. Thank you. Uh, so uh, I know you, and I've read, I you know, follow you on Twitter, and I've read uh, your great blog. Um, uh, but maybe you could, uh, for, for those watching, uh, introduce yourself, uh, your background, um, uh, your current role, and, and you, know, uh, the, the, you did two stints uh, as a CIO as well, uh, and just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, I've had actually three stints as a CIO. I was a uh, CIO at Liberty Mutual Insurance Group, uh, CIO at the University of New Hampshire, and CIO at Michigan State University. So two stints in higher ed and one, one, one stint in insurance. And it's an absolutely fascinating time to be in IT. And uh, about a, a year or so ago, I decided to broaden my horizons and start helping out CIOs and other C-suite leaders in a variety of ways related to technology. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so what, what got you into the CIO role, CIO role to begin with? Uh, why did you first agree to become one, being one of the toughest jobs in, in the business right now, I think. Well, I think in, fa in fairness, I probably didn't realize how tough a job it was uh, initially. I think you learn these things as, as, time, as time goes on. But really, for me, it was driven by a desire to help other people be successful with technology. Because as I was sort of really getting into, you know, really getting into my career, it really was born upon me the the challenge of people adapting in business to technology and applying it helpfully to business as opposed to having you know being in this constant disruption and churn and so when the opportunity came around to be a CIO I just was excited about being able to inc increase my contribution and really be you know, more influential and helpful with the business at that time at uh, Liberty Mutual. Well, great. Well, I'm going to ask you a little bit about that in a, mom in a moment, but uh, a couple of pieces of housekeeping first with a thank uh, Livestream, who does a great work in bringing CXO talk to the air, to the internet. Uh, and also, we love to take your questions um, throughout the show. So please uh, post them on Twitter. Use the hashtag CXO talk. Uh, we'll be monitoring that, and I'll ask uh, Joanna your questions. So, uh, so getting back to your, those two CIO positions that you had, what were the mandate imper imperatives that you had? Uh, usually, there's uh, when they bring a new CIO in, there's some challenge that has emerged or is, is believed to be facing the organization, and you want fresh blood to deal with that. What, what was the situation uh, with you? So, usually, the imperative, the imperatives were actually very similar, and they tended to be around do more with less, you know, some of the, you, that ubiquitous phrase is that when I started CIO, CIO jobs, there was that very much that sense of, you know, we're spending a lot on IT, but we're not getting enough for what we do spend. And we want you, you know, Joanna, to change that formula. 
And I don't think in, in a lot of ways that hasn't changed. I think CIOs still have a lot of pressure on them to drive efficiency and effectiveness within IT itself. However, I also think that there is a sea change happening where you know, other C-suite leaders, you know, CFOs, chief marketing officers, CEOs themselves, realize that the conversation is changing and should be changing to how is technology enabling an improved customer experience? How is it helping with quality, effectiveness, and efficiency in various lines of business? And so I feel like I've been able to help with the initial imperative, but I also have been very focused on changing that conversation to really how does somebody get value out of IT as opposed to that sort of unending pressure to control costs within IT itself. Yeah, which, uh, you know, as IT becomes more instrumental to running the business, this mm -hmm. is the big question. You put your finger right on it uh, with, you know, the business wants more effectiveness than get more out of their investment. But non-IT people don't understand that 80 to 90% of that budget is used to keep what they've already built going, right? You know, paying the maintenance fees and the staff uh, and the data center around all of that. And you got leaving 10 or 20% of your budget for innovation and growth uh, and doing interesting new things. Um, and so they typically want much more effectiveness, but they're not willing to correspondingly increase the investment level to get to those things. That's, that's my experience. What was what challenge do you see normally when a CIO has been given that mandate? You know, do all these great new things, but uh, typically not given the resources to do that. Yeah. So you know the the difficulties of getting capital to you know improve the business position through technology is often a challenge. I think a a, a link that's been missing, but there's certainly a lot of pressure on it now, is the talent piece of it. Talent is a tremendous problem in technology. The, you know, I, I call it the, you know, the technology talent wars and, and one of uh, a blog I wrote fairly, fairly recently. And that, you know, there's a, often a lot of conversation around, you know, money we need to spend on infrastructure, money we need to spend to acquire a new piece of technology, money we need to spend on services to correctly implement that technology. But I also try to help people shift the conversation to what talent is it that you need to innovate, to implement, to operate your, your technology portfolio? And are you making sure that you're hiring the right talent, you know, ret retaining them, applying them correctly? Since we're in this era of you know, hyper acceleration, someone coming in to a technology job today, they're going to have to reskill and upskill multiple times and, and all the time. And I think CIOs, CEOs, and boards need to pay a lot more attention to the talent they need. And they need to think just as much about applying capital, if you will, to the recruiting and retention of the right talent as they do to you know, making decisions about and buying technology. Yeah, and we know that uh, you know, technical people t tend to invest in certain skills that are that they both enjoy and uh, have commercial value, right? So, absolutely. You know, the, the, and now with the landscape changing so quickly, and a lot of these vendor stacks are getting quite large, but they're not considered sexy by you know, the developer community necessarily. Uh, how do you do that? I mean, what seems to me is a lot of the talent is being sucked up by the the cool internet companies, yeah. the cloud companies. Um, who work on you know very interesting and uh, uh, scale challenges much larger than any enterprise has to deal with. 
Uh, and then there also there's the whole factor, of, you know, that you that you can get stock options and and mm -hmm. a big payout on top of that. Um, what? How do you manage talent? Uh, you know, you, you're let's say you're a university and you're you're trying to, to do the very best for your students. How how are you going to acquire the talent that you need to really create world class IT? So what I often counsel people on is that you need to have multiple cha channels of getting talent. I mean, many of our universities, for example you know, don't tend to maybe be in, in urban areas. For example, there are many large universities like, you know, Michigan State University, you know, Ohio State, who are in, you know, sort of suburban or, or rural areas that don't tend to be technology centers of, of gravity. And in those instances, they need to have multiple ways of sourcing talent. One way is very obvious, it's the students. You know, many students like to you know, work at the university while they're there and are interested in having and working for the university once they graduate. So that's certainly, that's certainly a source. Um, you know, there, you know, university towns tend to be very attractive, interesting places to stay, work and play, if you will. And so, you know, looking for people who want to stay in the area for, for whatever reason. And also an area that higher ed hasn't particularly been interested in historically that I believe need to get more interested in now is that they need to think about alternate sourcing. And I'm not necessarily talking about, you know, jumping into, you know, offshore arrangements, but thinking about, you know, just as we are meeting remotely here today, right, Dion, mm -hmm. you know, you can have people working remotely extremely effectively. You know, I work remotely with you know, with my client, with my clients, of a, a, a fair amount, and there are ways to say, "Hey, I'm in, you know, a rural area of New England, let's say, and somebody who's really attractive to me to have them work for me, you know, lives in Chicago. Well, okay, that's fine. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, maybe you know, you f you fly them in, you know, once a month, and the rest of the time they use." tools like this to, you know, interact with their, with, you know, their colleagues and their peers. So that's, that's one way that I counsel. And, and have you seen that happen? I, I have actually seen that staffing model being more, much more widely adopted where you can get people in uh, areas of the country or areas of the world in which uh, the, the pay scale is a lot different, but for whatever reason, those people don't want to or cannot move uh, to, to a bigger right. area and they can get the job that they want. Uh, and with today's collaboration tools, it actually works pretty well. Yeah, and I think sometimes you'll see uh, leaders and human resources departments who maybe are a little queasy about it. And what I say to them, you know, try try it. I mean, do do it with a couple of people. I'm not advocating that all of a sudden you have, you know, hundreds of people working like this, but do it with a couple and and get your get your feet wet and 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 see how it goes. And uh, I I usually find that you know they get over the discomfort and. And off they go, and then that's another channel. Yeah, well, I've, no I've noticed that it's happened in, in uh, uh, companies like Yahoo and IBM. They've gone back and forth, uh, and the evidence seems to show that in, in companies where the employee engagement is high, it works pretty well. When it's low, Absolutely. maybe not so well. So it becomes yet another factor. Uh, and I know ADP, I was talking to their human resources folks. They have 22,000 remote workers. Um, and it, they say it works well. Yeah, yeah, that's it's great. It absolutely can work well. It's uh, as you say, the collaboration tools are there. It's usually things like policies and processes and training managers and supervisors how to lead people who are not physically proximate. That's a huge piece too. Yep. So Joanna, we have a question from Twitter. Um, 
Arsalan Khan uh, asks, how important is it to consider biases about technology and transformation within an organization? Uh, now, I'm not 100% sure what he means by that, but it triggered for me uh, the situation that comes up that uh, when I, well, I uh, advise CIOs and I talk to boards of directors, and often the boards of directors will say, well, we're not a technology company, right? So you know, IT is a cost center to us. Uh, you know, we just don't look at it that way. It's not our, you know, the, our biases that, you know, we automate what, we, what we've always done. Uh, we don't rethink our business in digital terms right. and we're not prepared to do that across the company. There's mm. one bias that I often see, but what, how do you, how do you, how have you dealt with that? What have you encountered? Well, the first thing I, uh, that I think in my head, I may not say it depending on the audience, is that th these days everybody is a, a, a digital organization, you know, a technology company, mm -hmm. sort of whether they like it or whether not. They like it or not. Yep. They like it or not. And what I, what I try to do is, 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 first of all, I always seek to, to deeply know the folks that I'm working with. And so I, I try to, you know, find some really relevant use cases for them that will be near and dear to them that illustrate how important technology and digital is to them. You have to go to where they're standing. If in their mind, they're like, hey, we're not a technology company, you know, we don't get why we have to spend all this capital, so on and so forth. You have to think of a way to influence them that speaks to where they are in their heads right now. So, uh, you know, using a higher ed example, it's, you know, I might say, well, you know, let's look out the window. <laughs> let's look at the students walking around. You know, what, what are they all doing? I mean, they're all, you know, holding their, you know, they're holding a device and they're looking like this and trying to explain to them that how, how students interact with the world, whether it's in a social sense or a commercial sense, is through a digital lens. And so you, you have to think about how to engage them, you know, how to appropriately include in their educational experience, you know, what aspects of that is going to be, you know, is going to be digital. So that's one way I might try to, uh, try to, you know, try to influence, uh, try to influence someone, I think. But I think the key is, is that CIOs, you know, other digital leaders, they have to find examples that are going to resonate with that audience. And if you come at, if, 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 for example, if my initial response was to say, well, you know, everybody's a digital organization and you are, whether you know it or not, that is not gonna work. That's gonna, you know, that's just gonna thud on the table uh, like a dead animal and not go, and not go, not go anywhere. So it, it's really important to, for IT leaders to go to where people are, are, are standing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and uh, exactly what I would advise as well. So um, so we have another question from Twitter, a good sure. one. Uh, Scott Weitzman uh, asks, is it key for new employees uh, to understand different aspects of the business outside of the technology part to drive greater impact overall? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so one of the things that it is tough to implement, but I strongly advise people to try is you need to rotate people through the, through the organization. So if, if you're bringing on a, a new IT employee and let's say their assignment is going to be supporting the finance organization or supporting the sales organization, you know, go and have them be in the finance and the sales organization for some, some period of time, I think our tendency as IT leaders is, okay, you know, you, you, you want people to know, you know, the analytics tools and, you know, you know the, the, 
the you know the, the coding languages you know you want them to know all this tech stuff you know cybersecurity, but it's really you can train people on those things you can be reskilling and upskilling people for that but what is more important for them to know is you know the company that they're in the organization are they in what are the products that they're selling how are they making their money how do they interact with their customers what do the customers perceive positively what do the customers perceive negatively what are the pain points that are being experienced in the sales organization or the finance organization or the support organization or the fulfillment organization? Those are things that you can't necessarily teach or train for. You have to rotate people and bed people um, in the organization. You know, go, go have them, you know, shadow a, you know, sit next to somebody in a, in a, you know, a sales call center or a service call center for a day. They're going to learn more by spending half a day job shadowing someone than they will, you know, in, in you know, months and months of, of technology work. And those sorts of programs can be hard because they're time consuming. They can be a little logistically challenging, but I think it's critically important. But the best time to do that for new employees is when they first come on board and they don't have too many duties yet, right? That they're, um, in terms of getting people up to speed on the business side. Absolutely. Abs and, and, and people need to think about that in terms of their, of their onboarding, right? They need to say, okay, th they need to accept the fact and plan for the fact that for the first three months, a new person is not going to be running at, you know, 90, 95% productivity. You're better off having them running them at 50% productivity and doing this, these sort of rotational experiences so that when they do get to the point that they're increasing their productivity, working specifically with the technology, they're going to be getting so much more value out of that person. Yeah, absolutely. And so that brings up a question uh, that I would have around uh, higher ed and uh, IT talent. Uh, and that is, um, IT people tend to be a little bit more loyal to their profession than they are to individual employers. Turnover is fairly high. Average IT uh, staffer has been around for about three years on average, not very long, right? So they move around and do a lot of exciting jobs and they maybe, not maybe don't want to learn the business too much because they know they're not going to need that for very long. Uh, so they make a minimum investment. I've seen that. But in higher ed, you're talking about an educational environment. Is there is there a different uh, uh, stance towards you know learning about the business and learning in general about new things uh, in, in the IT staff, or is it same same IT you know, mindset as you see everywhere else? So traditionally, I would say that IT people who work in higher education institutions tend do tend, as you point out, to be very attached to the institution. Hmm. So they think of themselves as wildcats or as as Spartans or as uh, you know, you know, blue jays or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever the, the mascot happen, happen, happens to be tigers. And so they, they think of themselves that way, you know, as much as they think of themselves as technology people. And so I think higher ed has been very fortunate. They've had uh, a lot of, you know, long tenured, very dedicated uh, employees who really have a love for, for, for the place and for the mission. However, I think that is starting to change to your point, you know, People are starting to realize that, you know, they can be more uh, mobile, if you will, even while they still live in, you know, live you know, near these institutions or campuses. And I think that speaks to, you know, I'll generalize a little bit and, you know, say, millenn you know, millennials, you know, they, they, they realize that they can rotate around and have different, you know, experiences in different organizations and companies, higher ed 
you know, retail, manufacturing, insurance, financial, financial services. And, and I think there's a couple of things, a couple of things I would say is that, you know, a lot of the folks that have worked at, at these institutions for a while are baby boomers, you know, they're starting, mm-hmm. they're starting to retire and, you know, taking their place are, you know, younger, younger workers who, you know, do realize that they can, you know, be more fl- flexible and mobile. And I think higher ed is going to have to already has to, and is going to continue to have to up, up its game. Because as you say, that the higher ed increasingly is not competing against other higher ed institutions for talent. They're competing against everybody for talent. Yes, exactly. And, and tech is with everything. So that is inside every part of our business uh, and organization. So it's a, it's a big challenge. So let's, let's talk a little bit about today's uh, IT operating environment in higher sure. education and what the big shifts are. Um, I got to believe that things like public cloud are going to change a lot about uh, where your budget's going to go. You're going to shift from CapEx to OpEx and uh, cybersecurity is becoming a bigger deal than ever, even yeah. though it doesn't help with innovation necessarily uh, or, or reinventing the future uh, of higher education. Uh, student experience, I got to believe the bar mm-hmm. is really rising up. Uh, you know, students want a very consumerized, extremely convenient mm-hmm. way of engaging with the, the, your university resources and, and, and each other, I imagine. So maybe you can paint us a picture. What, what are you seeing? What's changing? Um, what's in play? What's going on? So higher ed is now experiencing the same challenges and opportunities as everybody else as it relates to technology. It was okay for them for a long period of time. You know, they could lag. You know, they could be you know late adopters of things, and it, it was it was fine. They no longer have that luxury for all of the reasons that that you state. And the both challenge and opportunity for them is that the challenge is that you know they they paved a lot of cow paths, particularly with their ERP and their student information system implementations, and those can be uh, sort of millstones around around their neck mm-hmm. that they've been doing things a certain way, and their technology reflects that. So they've got a lot of legacy debt when it comes to that. Um, as I mentioned before, you know, campuses are beautiful places, but they're often very large, sprawling places with very interesting and old buildings. And so just things like putting in quality Wi-Fi solutions can be very challenging, very challenging for, for them. And so, you know, you've got a lot of legacy debt and infrastructure there that they have to contend with and can be quite expensive to contend with. In the meanwhile, there's a tremendous amount of pressure on them to you know, increase graduation rates, uh, you know, provide, you know, affordable access to, you know, different, uh, you know, different demographics segments and so on and so forth. Uh, states in the, in the public higher ed space increasingly are saying, hey, you know, we're not going to increase your appropriation unless you improve these key performance indicators. So there's a lot of pressure from, from all sides, you know, whether it's the states, you know, the consumer experience, um, you know, there's sort of a bifurcated financial outlook for many institutions. You've got institutions on one end of the spectrum, let's call it, you know, you know, the Harvards and the Stanfords who have a ton of capital, you know, very well endowed, um, mm-hmm. you know, can, they have the capital to invest in, in, in innovation and what have you. But sadly, there's a lot of institutions who are very, very stressed financially, you know, have been um, you know, really struggling to, you know, fill their freshman classes and, and what have you. So this, this soup, if you will, of, of, of challenges uh, is 
you know, can be very intense, especially for, for CIOs. However, on the opportunity side, they can sort of leapfrog a bunch of stuff that other, you know, in, that other organizations have had to, had to deal with. For example, if they have, you know, a legacy ERP system that was built in the 80s, well, you know, they can go right to a cloud-based solution, you know, like a, you know, a, a, a you know, workday or what, or, or what have you. Um, you know, they can maybe be doing some interesting things with Salesforce, et cetera, et cetera. And so they need to think about ways to trans, translate their problems into, into opportunities. And a lot of the work I, I did at Michigan State was around that, about how, you know, you can leapfrog over a bunch of problems and, and get yourself into an opportunity. And, and it'd, be, it'd be very curious to know, um, in just a second, I'm, I'm gonna do a halfway uh, a message here. Sure. Uh, but think about this. Um, why is it easier to, to leapfrog and hire than it is in traditional industries? Uh, but first, uh, we're about halfway through the show. Uh, we've got uh, Joanna Young, Senior Managing Director of Blue Line Associates, uh, well-known former CIO. We're talking about CIO higher education talent and a bunch of other interesting topics. We'd love to take a couple more questions from Twitter on the hashtag CXO Talk. So, Joanna, why why is it is it easier to leapfrog in higher education than in some other industries? Is, is summer having the summer off make a difference? Uh, uh, help us understand. Oh, so big misconception: <laughs> higher ed doesn't take the summer off. In fact, for, if you're in IT and higher ed, summer is your busiest time because you're you know scrambling around the dorms, upgrading Wi-Fi. That's usually usually when they choose to um, do any you know major systems upgrades. So uh, they're they're busier than one-armed paper hangers in the in the summer. I wouldn't say it's easier in higher ed, but I would say that the opportunity is there and they need to figure out how to exploit it. Um, you know, I'll give a couple of examples. Uh, my good colleague, Jeff Grable at Michigan State University has formed the, uh, the, the Michigan State Innovation Hub. And they are doing some really leading, if not bleeding edge things with educational technology in that hub. The way they did that is they, they both separated that unit and, and you know, had it be very uh, unique and separate for, from some of the existing infrastructure, but they also tied, they also um, tied, it, tied it in, you know, for example, Jeff and I, you know, worked work together strategically to make sure that I wasn't off doing something that was going to impede him and that he was not off doing something that might cause me, you know, a security headache or, or some other sort, sort of thing. And uh, you know they're they're doing some some fascinating stuff, sort of leap, leaping ahead in that space. I would point to uh, the, the University of Texas system. Phil Kamarni and Marnie Baker down in Texas are doing some absolutely fascinating things in, in partnership with uh, with our with, with 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 Salesforce. And everybody in higher ed should familiarize themselves with uh, with, with what's going uh, with what's going on down there in in Texas, because it's uh, I think. You know, it was extremely interesting that you, you uh, thinking about using uh, you know, blockchain and other things to really, uh, really disrupt, but also revolutionize uh, educational technology. And then I think many people in higher ed are familiar with uh, things that have been going on at, at like Arizona State University, which has been very innovative in terms of increasing um, access and affordability for, for, for folks down in, in Arizona. So you have these it, and I and the reason I mentioned those three specifically is that those are within a higher ed. Those are with, within higher ed institutions that this innovation is happening. And so, you know, other places should look to 
not just what they've done, but how they did it. How did they do that? How were they able to innovate, but also continue to, you know, recognize, you know, maybe some legacy debt that they have and, and deal with that also? Yeah, no, very interesting. And then which brings us to uh, a question we just had come in from Twitter, uh, Robert Noel. What are the latest trends in student expectations for digital experience? How can institutions best attract students? And I think the question is, has digital experience risen up to be a major factor? Um, uh, I imagine the school reputation and other things also matter a great deal, probably more even today. Um, where, do, where does that lie? And what are, what are students really expect on the cutting edge right now? Well, yeah, it's interesting. I think that students still, so I have, um, you know, some, you know, young, young people who are, you know, looking at colleges now in high school age folks, friends and family. And it's still about, it's still a lot of their choices. You know, what are they interested in? You know, does the campus feel like a good fit? You know, where are their friends going? I mean, there are a lot of, very non-digital factors that mm-hmm. go into why a child and their family elect a certain institution, obviously, you know, financial factors as well. However, there, you know, increasingly it's, you know, what's the Wi-Fi like in the dorms? Is it easy to register for classes? Is it easy to, you know, select, uh, you know, the residence hall that I want to live in? Is it easy to figure out um, whether, you know, what dining hall best caters to, you know, the, my, my personal food uh, choices? And increasingly important as, you know, a lot of campuses have uh, more of an international flavor as well. And so the, you know, they don't want a lot of friction in those experiences. They don't want to have to, you know, go to, you know, you know, go to a website, you know, navigate through, you know, a difficult experience to find out what should be a very easy piece of information. Because you're talking about young people who, you know, they know how to use Uber, you know, they know how they, you know, they know how to, um, you know, go on, go on Yelp and figure out where has the best pizza. I mean, they're used to running their lives like this. And so once they choose somewhere, they want to be able to have that same sort of frictionless experience that they have had in high school, right? Yeah, no, exactly. And so this kind of takes us into, you know, what's next for higher education uh, and digital? What are the business model impacts uh, when it comes to digital transformation? So we see uh, competitive learning products, things like uh, massively open online courses, which uh, even though they're not much in the news, they're growing like 30 30 to 40% a year globally. Uh, and you have uh, services like Coursera, which are operating, you know, very flexible, highly digital education that's community-based as well. Um, uh, and although these aren't necessarily accredited, uh, they, you know, uh, when you talk about upskilling and and keeping, you know, existing employees going, it, it, is is that uh, um, are those impacting the business models of existing universities, or really that hasn't yet happened? I think it is starting to impact the business model, but I think the big tipping point is yet to come. And here's what I believe the tipping, the, the, the tipping point is going to be, is that increasingly employers are interested in, in what you know and what you can do, not so much mm-hmm. what Great. the name is on your diploma. And employers are starting to figure out how they can tap into the, tap into the workforce effectively and get you know, productive, highly engaged employees that you know don't necessarily have that you know brand you know brand name degree, and once 
it, it's sort of like two halves coming together as, as employers are figuring that out and saying, I, I mean, you know, let, let's take an extreme example. Uh, you know, I can probably take, you know, uh, a, you know, a bright 18 year old who has, you know, done well in high school, has the right sort of attitude and aptitude, put them through a couple of boot camps and have them be highly, you know, highly productive, you know, in a, in a full-time job. And if that particular student and that family, if that's a fit for, for that individual to do so, then, okay, you know, you know, start, start your career and maybe you're getting your educational experience in terms of, you know, that classic liberal arts experience along, you know, along the way, you know, the employer is, you know, paying for them to, uh, you know, go to freshman English and, and, and everything else. You know, if you take that as an, ex as, as, you know, an example on one end of, of, of the spectrum, you know, you think about how students, first of all, we're all now lifelong students because we have to upskill and reskill. Yeah much but if you think about the traditional you know 18 year old graduating from high school the number of pathways that are going to be available to them that employers support and are okay with is going to change and in my mind that is going to be the tipping point the, the four-year degree no longer first of all why does it even have to be four years right mm -hmm. um you know the the the, the classic four-year degree is is not going to be the only pathway and it is going to be you know if you were to look at a pie chart it's going to be less and less of a percentage of the pathway that people take and i think once both students and employers figure that out i think that is going to be the tipping point and you know what the value of higher education institutions is, is the content they have it's their amazing faculty you know, it's the research experiences, it's all those things. It's they need to figure out, they're going to need to figure out a way to have that, if you will, content and experiences available in these new pathways that students and employers are increasingly figuring out. Is it fair to say um, that uh, as education becomes more granular and maybe not, it's not going, becoming more vocational, but, you know, people need, need to be able to demonstrate that they have skills and capabilities in, in relatively specific subjects uh, that emerge very quickly. Um, you know, what's um, wh how are how is that experience going to be designed? Is that what universities are trying to figure out, or is that still too far down the road? Universities aren't moving to bring things like augmented re and virtual reality into to bear to, to to digitize those types of uh, you know access to research, for example, the research experience. I think there's a lot of interesting and fascinating things going on all over higher education. And um, you and I were chatting earlier, you know, Educause in the fall in Philadelphia is a great place to see all great place to see all that stuff and, and talk to people about all those fascinating things. I think the key is if you think about it now, um, who owns the transcript? I mean, what's the source of record for the transcript? It's the institution, right? You know, what classes did you take? What grades did you get in them? You know, what, what, what extracurricular experiences did you have? Blah, blah blah blah. That that's in that data, if you will, is is within the source systems that were within institutions. It's like electronic medical records, right? So right. who owns that? And and does that all is that all going to move out to, to some blockchain or something, right? You know? Exactly. And so if, I I think a key to this tipping point that I mentioned earlier is that once the student owns that completely, you know, once that data is in the hands of of the student, I think that's when we're going to see things. I think that's when we're going to see things change. That's, you know, that, that's my bet, if you will. Yeah, so the student will actually get a, more control of the overall experience and be able to select the technologies they, they want, uh, uh, who and what can access that data, 
uh, and be able, yeah, it's going to be a very interesting world. So much more heterogeneous is what we've seen with the rest of the web too, right? So right, exactly. All right, so while we have a little bit of time, you and I talked a little bit about uh, culture uh, and its relationship to successful digital transformation. We could, uh, I think you said we could talk about that all day, uh, which I very much agree with. Uh, why is that? You know, let, let's let's tease that apart. Let's get to what really matters. Why is culture a blocker or an enabler specifically for digital transformation? So culture eats everything for breakfast, lunch, and, and dinner. Dinner, yeah. it will. I. You know, it, it's interesting, no matter how many organizations uh, I, I work with, you know, the same sentence always comes up within the first day or two. We have always done it this way, right? Yeah. And so, it, and the only thing that's the same about culture is that culture is different in, in, in every organization. It's, it's N of one everywhere. Um, you know, you know, you say, oh, higher ed is, is, is a vertical. Let me tell you, higher ed institutions are diff as different from one another as they are from, from organizations in different, in, different in different verticals. So, you know, culture, culture is a, a blocker because primarily because either overtly or not, people are incented and motivated to conform with the culture. You know, let, let, me, let me give you an example. If, if the culture is that, uh, you know, it's a very hierarchical leadership model and, you know, the, you know, the decision making, let's say, is, is tightly held at the top and not distributed. Well, people are incented and motivated to behave in ways that supports that. They're not all of a sudden, you know, because a new CIO comes in, all of a sudden be incented and, and enabled to, you know, have just more distributed and, and lower level decision making. So, and if you think about technology today, you know, technology, a lot of this stuff is designed to drive decision-making very low as possible. We can have dashboards on our phones. We can, you know, be alerted to, to, to you know, to problems. We can get a lot more, you know, data in the hands of, of workers to enable them to, you know, help customers more directly and effectively, so, so on and so forth. But if you've got a culture that, you know, holds decision making maybe kind of tightly. The CIO is probably not going to have a heck of a lot of of luck trying to introduce technology that that does things differently. So that's you know one example that I can think of where culture would would be a, a blocker. Where culture can be an enabler is is where you know people realize. You know, you mentioned employee engagement earlier. You know, an engaged workforce, part of how they get in, engaged is they feel empowered to, to do, you know, interesting and customer service oriented things, you know, every minute of, of every day. Oh, you know, th this, this customer needs, you know, this thing in, in pink instead of blue. I'm just going to, you know, run down, buy a paintbrush and paint the thing pink and ship it to them. You know, you you want to be able, and that you know that employee is is going to feel good and going to feel you know going to feel empowered. And so you think about deploying technology and you know somewhere that has that sort of has that sort of culture, you're probably going to have an uh, an easier time of of, of adoption. But uh, you know, I think that a lot of times boards and CEOs and and other C-suite folks maybe don't pay enough attention to culture and also the processes that that culture engenders, you can have the best technology in the world. If you haven't paid attention to your talent, if you haven't paid attention to the right sort of processes, it doesn't matter. It will fail. 
Yeah, I've uh, called uh, corporate culture uh, a uh, an enterprise-wide immune system that throws off change because it's yeah. really companies are successful because they had a culture that worked, right? It got them wh where they were. This is how we do things. This is what's acceptable. Um, and these new technologies propose, you know, uh, they suggest that we should be Uberizing and Airbnb or all of our business models and doing these very radical uh, uh, turns in the, the corporate direction. And that is often very hard for existing corporate culture to accept. So it's one of our biggest challenges. And, and I think it, it framed it up very nicely. So if I, I just, uh, just a plus one on that is that, you know, a strategy I often advise is that, you know, if a CIO is trying to influence a culture, find, f there is always somewhere in the organization that is open to change. Get a couple of quick wins with, you know, even if it's small, quick wins, because you'll start to have sort of a flywheel or a snowball effect. So I'm like, okay, you know, I, you know, you've got this big problem over here, but you really don't think you can influence it because they're not culturally ready stick a pin in that go over and you know this little group over here who's raising their hand saying oh i want to do this i want to do this go help them out and get a quick win and then go back maybe to the the, the larger issue if you can yeah no exactly yeah. and so so uh, yeah thanks for that and uh we'll have to talk more about that next time we get a chance um Great. one final question uh kind of uh, taking the that lens out a little farther um and saying well what's the end game here not that there probably ever will be an end game but now we look at uh, trends like AI. We had uh, Scott Weitzman back on Twitter asking, how will AI change higher education, artificial intelligence? Um, and, and we've seen already you know, people creating uh, instructors and teaching tools using, using AI. It's, you know, adaptive learning is a big trend in education, saying that I'm gonna create a you know, micro-customized uh, um, uh, uh, educational plan and uh, um, delivery that uh, is adaptive in, in near real time to how fast the student is learning and what they need to know and things like that. So you know, we look long-term that uh, the machines will take over much of the teaching institutions or is that is that fantasy? Well, you know, I think we've got a lot of examples in pop culture, right? That uh, can show us the negative negative side, you know, you know, the Matrix, Terminator, it's, you know, uh, George Orwell's 1984. Um, and, you know, in my mind, you know, technology is amoral, right? Technology doesn't necessarily know right from wrong. You could argue that you know, one day AI uh, will take will take care of that. It's people that know what is right and, and wrong. And when we're developing AI, whether it's in a higher education setting or it's autonomous vehicles or whatever the case it, it may be, humans need to think about how do we design and implement this technology so that it is in service to human beings, right? It's yes. in service to human beings. It's in service to the student. It's in service to the faculty. It's in it's it's in service to the you know the, con the consumer. That is that is that is the key. And I think there are uh, some very interesting areas of study that need to to deal with that. You know, we've already seen you know some not so good examples, uh, you know, of technology that hasn't, and we, we see it all the time, right? You know, people implement ERP systems and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, not only are they spending more on technology, you know, everybody hates the system. Well, let's not have that happen with AI, right? Let's, right. let's learn from the past and uh, apply a little bit more thought to artificial intelligence. Yeah, well, I, I like to say uh, all technology is a two-edged sword uh, and with great power comes great responsibility. And Absolutely. Yeah, I'm not sure we're taking up that last part well enough yet. Yeah. So, so Joanna, thanks for joining us. Um, uh, really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your experiences uh, as a CIO and, and, and working with, uh, with uh, 
up and coming IT leaders. Uh, any final words? Uh, just thank you so much for having me uh, on the show. Uh, people can find me on Twitter at JCYCIO. I'm also on, on LinkedIn. I love hearing from people and talking and collaborating about all things technology. And, you know, this, this, has, been, this has been great fun. It's always great fun. And uh, look forward to doing it sometime again soon. Absolutely. We'd love to have you back on. All right. Well, that was episode 243 of CXO Talk. Um, uh, we're done for, for this uh, episode, but you can catch more on Friday, uh, July 14th. Michael Krigsman, the, the founder of CXO Talk, will be speaking with Kim Stevenson. Oh, great. Uh, at Lenovo. Yes, exactly. It's going to be a great, a great show. I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah, Kim's right. awesome. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Thanks, everyone. Mm -hmm.